Welcome back to another episode of Sporting Roots. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Leslie Patterson. We talked about all things training, self-confidence, film production, and a whole lot more too. So stay tuned to hear about Leslie's journey from the only female rugby player in Scotland to five-time cross-triathlon world champion. I'm delighted that tonight we have the wonderful Leslie Patterson joining us live from San Diego, I believe. For those of you who don't know Leslie, here's a very speedy overview of as many of the things that she's done that I could come up with. So she's three times XDARA world champion, two times ITU cross triathlon world champion. She's been first across multiple 70.3 races. She's got a bachelor's degree in drama and a master's degree in theater. Her own coaching company called Braveheart Coaching. She's written a book called The Brave Athlete and also has a film production company. Have I missed anything? <laughs> I don't know. Oh man, that's that's a, a laundry list. Um, <laughs> probably an F F bomb dropper extraordinaire. That would that would definitely be top of the list. Uh, I thought to get the ball rolling, we'd start with three quick questions just to like set the tone for what we're gonna chat about tonight. So my first question to you is, what is your favorite place in the world to train? Oh, well, come on now. It's got to be sterling. You kidding me? <laughs> no, I mean, Demaya has a, a pretty special place in my heart. So my old man that's here on the call, he used to take me up there rather frequently. So pretty much every day after school, when I was young, I would run up there. So, um, and then my, my husband uh, proposed to me at the top of Demaya when I was, uh, gosh, that was almost 20 years ago. Um, on on Christmas Day, so yeah, that Demai is pretty pretty damn special. But uh, I have to say, um, you know, Colorado and uh, and California are just amazing places. Just because you get great weather and wonderful mountains and climbs and vistas. So while it's not got the pouring rain and uh, the freezing cold nature of Scotland, it does have the the hills and the beauty. So those those are two of my favorite places for sure. Okay, I like it. So, uh, second question: What is your favorite racing memory? Ooh, man, that's a tough one. Uh, probably, you know, it's funny because when you've dreamt of being something like a world champion for for pretty much since I came out of the womb, you know, I mean, I was an athlete from very very young, right? When it, when it actually happens, it's very overwhelming and, and, and you can't really absorb it. Um, and so in many ways, you know, I think as well, you, you, you get the whole sort of, uh, you don't feel like you deserved it or you weren't really that good and it was just a bit of a fluke. So I think for me, probably my, my favorite race was 2012 Xterra World Championships when I defended the title. Because I think when you defend a title, you know, um, it's just kind of proof to yourself that, that, that you are that good, you know. Um, and then my old man had missed the first one that I won, which was kind of a bummer for him. Um, so it was nice to have him there and to have my husband there because the pair of them are, are thick as thieves. So it was, it, we, had a great, we had a great time. So I think, I think just all of those things together just, and it was one of those races where I, I don't think athletes get this many times in their career, maybe once or twice throughout their entire career where absolutely everything goes perfectly. 
and it was one of those days everything so you know you kind of put that in a bottle and you and you try and remind yourself of that and every other shit day that you have after that point you mentioned kind of you had a bit of self-doubt and did you deserve it after the first win did you really struggle with that were you second guessing yourself quite a lot Definitely, definitely, because the girl that was my main contender at the time, a girl called Melanie, um, uh, uh, she, Melanie McQuaid, um, she had won a lot in the past and, and she was kind of, I guess, the hot favourite. And she actually ended up collapsing um, about half a mile or, or just really falling apart, basically. And then she ended up collapsing and not even finishing. And so the big thing was, well, did Leslie win or did she just kind of, you know, mess it up? And, and as a consequence... Um, that's why Leslie won. So I think that kind of buried into my head a little bit, um, you know, but in hindsight, it's one of those things, right? She realized she had to push that hard, stay away from me, that she pushed too hard in, in those kind of conditions, you know, and, and being and winning or being a good athlete means putting everything together, right? Whether that's nutrition or pacing or any one of those things, but um but yeah, and I think it's pretty common when you win a big race to then sort of set the, the first big race to really self-doubt. And I had a, ve a very crappy first few months coming back after winning that race, you know, where I was just absolute rubbish. Um, so I had to really work. It was interesting because I worked, you know, my husband, Simon, is a sports psychologist. So we really had to work on the reasons why I do this sport, what's important to me and what do I love about it. And we really got back to that essence. And I remember spending all summer just out in the mountains because that's where I love to be. And then with a bunch of buddies, you know, I had wonderful training partners and, you know, and we can chat about it later, but that's what kind of being a part of something like Sterling Tri Club instilled in me was the importance of training partners. I mean, they're everything, I think, because, you know, it's the enjoyment, the social aspect, you learn about yourself, you learn about other people, you help one another, and you really bond in adversity. You know, you don't bond in strength. So all those crap training sessions where your mates are there kind of pushing you along and helping you out, you know, you, you create this amazing bond. So, so that's what I did that summer. And I think it just really paid off. Helped you kind of get over that wee hurdle that you were facing at the time. Yep. Okay, so last wee introduction question is would you rather be in Scotland or in San Diego? Oh, that's an awful question to ask. How can you say <laughs> such a thing? Um, God, I'll tell you what, man, San Diego is hard to, hard to beat. You know, um, I think everything from the, the weather really just, it makes me happy. The sunshine makes me happy. And I know all you guys can probably relate to that whether it's when you go on a training camp to Mallorca or you go to Lanzarote or something like that, everything is so much easier as an athlete. And because being an athlete has been so much part of my identity, it just, it was, it's been such a wonderful place to train. Um, and then there's so many opportunities, you know, whether it's building a business or, or, um, you know, uh, developing connections or having access to facilities or, you know, um, expertise, Certainly in California, there's so much at your fingertips that you can have all the time. And I just don't think we could have built a coaching business the way that we did if we had been in Scotland. You know, there just isn't there isn't that platform to do it the way there is in California. So and then now getting into film, of course, you know, we're close to Los Angeles. So it's, it's really perfect. You're just in the perfect place. You really are. I'll bug you guys though. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely it's been normally we try and come back about twice a year. But with COVID, it's 
it's been well over, can it will be close to two years by the time hopefully we get out in the summer? So obviously we're primarily here to talk kind of about your journey in sport and how you've made it to where you are today. Let's start with how you got into sport. So you played rugby as a child. Was that kind of the first sport you did when you were younger? Is that something you'd always done? Yeah, so I mean, I was, again, super active, loved to be out playing with the boys from a really young age and uh, was out playing football with my brother and all my pals outside from, I don't know, the age of four or something, uh, climbing trees and all sorts. And so um, the natural progression to that was uh, my old man took me along to watch my brother play at Stirling County. And I just was like, wow, mud plus a lot of boys plus beating them up. That sounds perfect. (laughs) so so uh he was a wee bit confused at the time I think wondering like why I'd want to do that but uh I jumped into that and and just absolutely loved it you know just absolutely loved it and it was definitely hard but I think I've always sought out things that are a bit challenging it's just in my nature um so I had a lot of fear I mean in so much as when you're a, a wee girl and you're surrounded by boys all the time you know, there was a lot of finger pointing, there was a lot of snickering and laughing and joking and 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 bit by bit, the guys in my own team got really used to me and, and they were really supportive of me. But anytime we'd go and play, you know, a, a out in Glasgow or, or wherever, you know, at a tournament, it would just be the same, you know, laughing and joking. And you'd either get hit harder by the boys or they wouldn't want to touch you. So it was, I think probably just coping with all of that made me very, very resilient as a person. Um, and then probably some of my fondest memories of playing rugby were certainly at the time at Stirling County, they didn't have any women's changing facilities. I mean, you know, forget that. They had a little bathroom uh, with one toilet stall. It was absolutely gross. And um, and uh, I just remember my fingers, because he wouldn't let you wear gloves at that time. And my fingers would be so cold from the snow. Um, yeah, I couldn't get my, I used to have to get a lady that would come into the bathroom and untie my shoes because my hands were so cold. And I used to have to just kind of wash my, the mud off out the, the wee tap and sink with cold water. So it, uh, again, just that sort of resiliency um, definitely, I think, has helped, you know, as I've progressed in sport. But it was it was very, very hard when I had to give that up at the age of 12. I'd been with a club for five years and, um, you know, competed all over the country and gone on tours and all sorts. And, there wasn't a woman's team, right? There wasn't anything that I could go on to at that time. So I was very, very lost, having gone from all of this team unity and, you know, uh, all of that in such direction to then nothing. I was like, oh, wow. Um, so so luckily my dad, you know, had he'd been in the, in the Sterling Tri Club for a while and he uh, took me along to that because I, I swam and I ran and did all that stuff too. Um, so when he took me along to that, it was just, you know, it was amazing for me to take all of that energy and put it into something uh, equally as fun and stupid. <laughs> and so when you were at County, Sterling County, were you the only female there I, completely? Completely, yeah. And I would wow. imagine it would have been about maybe 250 boys throughout, you know, every age division. Um, uh, but what was really, really cool was I played with um, Bill McLaren was a famous commentator at the time and his grandson, uh, I played with him. So it was just great, right? You know, it felt like you were really connect because he was a wonderful rugby player and went on to play for Scotland himself. In fact, Rory McLaren. And um, yeah, it was it was kind of it was kind of wild. In fact, I think there was only one other girl in the whole of Scotland 
that uh, that played rugby. So pretty much in the whole of Scotland, there was two of us. And then at one point, I think she gave up and there was only me. So, you know, it was it was kind of bizarre. And any time I'd go play in a tournament, they would always get me to hand the flowers out to the ladies that did the baking. <laughs> I remember that, you know. So uh, it was it was it was kind of wild. I was in the paper a couple of times as well and got to be the captain and you know, but, uh, but yeah, it was just an amazing experience. I absolutely loved it. And then when you joined the Tri Club, so when you gave up County and came to Sterling Tri, was there other people your age? Were there other girls at the club already? Or was it still just you yeah. <laughs> fighting your way? It was pretty much just me. There was a couple of ladies, older, older, older gals, um, you know, well, older to me, of course, they were, you know, maybe 20s or 30s, right? But I was only, when I joined the Tri Club, I think it was maybe 13, uh, 12 or 13. Um, but there was no, there was no young people, maybe one, um, but very, very few. Um, and it was largely older, older people. And, and I really loved that. And that's, I think, why I connected with it so much. Um, because I, I struggled at school with the girls my own age and I just I don't know I just didn't have anything really in common with them you know I wasn't into shopping I wasn't into clothes I wasn't into makeup I wasn't into drinking you know it was just I was so focused as well I always wanted to be an athlete and really in Scotland at the time you know girls didn't really do sport the same way and certainly the school I was at was rubbish for sport total like they didn't have anything so yeah, you were. I was. I was a weirdo. I was a total weirdo. So at school, at high school, um, you know, I would go out running at lunchtime and just get bullied for it, and just you know, pick names, and people would just think I was total weird. So um, yeah, it was. It was an It was an interesting journey because I had this wonderful experience in the tri club and a, all these great pals that were you know ten and fifteen years older than me. But then I would go back to school and be sitting on my own, you know, just because I didn't relate to anyone. Um, but I think that being that oddball in a way sort of helps you again. It makes you more resilient, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no wonder you're so mentally tough if you have to like deal with all of that. Oh my goodness. Oh, mentally crazy. I think, you know, I think most, most girls and I mean, cause we're talking in the mid nineties, you know, it just wasn't that common in Scotland for, for, you know, the, the way athletics was. So they just didn't get me. So it was, it was very, very challenging, but thank goodness I had the, I had the tri club. I mean, I absolutely loved it every weekend. It was just everything for me, you know. And so was it a case of you joined the tri club and you were immediately hooked into triathlon? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I just, I love the way I, it pushed my body. I love the three sports and the way they were put together. And it just, it, it felt, you know, I'm, I'm from a dancing background as well. And I think all of the sort of movement in rugby and all of that, it just felt like the three different sports felt like some form of dance for me in a way, the way that it made my body feel kinesthetically was incredible. I really instantly, instantly loved it. And then you know, there wasn't too much competition um, in Scotland at the time. So I was able to <laughs> win races pretty quick. And that's quite, quite addictive. That's for sure. So was there, were you able to get along to quite a few races then? Was there starting to be races for you, like as an, yeah. a younger athlete at the time? Yep. There was junior championships. And luckily, again, my old man took me to all of them. Uh, he, he did a bunch of races uh, too. So we just went together, which was great. And in fact, I think I rode his bike for the, the first bit, which was way too big for me, uh, until uh, there was a wonderful guy, uh, unfortunately, that passed away, but uh, Rod, 
uh, Rod Curtis that was part of the club. Um, but but I, I was given one of his bikes, I think, at one point to borrow. And, you know, everyone just kind of chipped in and helped me out, get the kit, get the bike, all that. And, uh, yeah, they had junior junior champs, kind of like what they have now, but just not, not as big at all. And so from joining the club to ex-Dera world champion multiple times over, do you want to kind of... Yeah, through that progression slightly. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's just a wee bit of a progression. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think, again, what was instilled in me was sort of the why behind I, I, I did the sport and being out in the mud and the terrain and the social aspect, that was such a huge part of what I loved about, about racing. And so getting into triathlon more seriously, of course, I was approached by the British triathlon team when I was, gosh, quite, quite young, really. I think I, in the first year I got into triathlon, I won the Scottish Junior Championships, beating a girl called Colette McShane. Um, and um, anyways, as a consequence, the UK or British triathlon invited us down for a training weekend. And we went to that, which was all just unbelievable. I mean, you know, uh, but being around of English people was definitely a challenge. <laughs> I hadn't traveled too much at that point. But <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, it was an interesting experience because certainly at the time, they, they, they had teething problems, I would have said, in terms of the, the way that it was all set up. And they didn't really know how to talk to junior athletes, certainly junior girls, and, and it was very, it was the movement towards sports science had really sort of taken a hold. So what you had was a lot of coaches that, that were scientists and it was very numbers driven. And as a consequence, there was nothing in there really about psychology. And I wasn't an amazing swimmer, albeit, you know, I was still a 20 minute 1500 swimmer. But compared to the way that the gals in the front packs of ITU were racing, you know, 18 minutes now, bloody 17 or whatever it is, um, you know, you're still a couple of minutes off the pace. And so automatically, I would say I was kind of black marked uh, by British triathlon. And even although I outbiked and outran a ton of them, they didn't really want to invest the time in me um, because I wasn't really a swimmer. Um, and so I felt that instantaneously and I think as a young again female athlete you know you have a lot of doubts you have you know your, your confidence can be quite low at times I was struggling at school with people liking me and all that so here here we would have it the coaches wouldn't really speak to me you wouldn't get any attention and automatically you're assuming it's because you're not good enough um, and so I would say I struggled with that a lot um, between the ages of 15 and, and when I sort of had a, a first retirement from the sport at the age of 20. So I was, you know, trying to be, uh, get, 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 get nominated, uh, qualified for the Commonwealth Games. I was, you know, I, I was on lottery funding, all of that good stuff. Luckily, my old man knew how to fill out the form. So I got some, some decent money, thank goodness. Um, but yeah, I think I just really struggled mentally with confidence. And the, the, the odd thing is, 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 you know, in the UK, everything is very much based about, about Olympic sports and there's no room for anything else regardless. And so if you weren't an ITU racer, you weren't anything. 
And so I just couldn't get the swimming to where it needed to be. And I just lost all my confidence. I spent hours twice a day in the pool, every body day, swimming camps. At one point was swimming, you know, 40, 50K a week. I mean, all sorts, driving all over everywhere, going to the best swim, swimming coaches in the world. And, and, but there was just that mental block. I just couldn't, I couldn't get over as well as, as probably as, as well as physical, right? It just wasn't good enough at, at swimming. And, uh, you know, my biking then started to go downhill, my running went downhill and then just everything. I was like, why am I doing this? This is, I, I don't enjoy this anymore. And then all of the races were, you know, in city centers. I'm like, I, I grew up out in the mountains, out in Demiat. Like I'm in a city center doing circles. Like, what is this all about? So got very, very disillusioned and um, met my husband at the time. So I met him, he's a sports psychologist and I gave the sport up. So that's how awesome he is at his job. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, luckily I was, I, I met him while I was studying at Loughborough University and I was studying drama and that's my other love, right? So I have these two different passions, sports and the arts, which, which often conflict with one another. Certainly the types of people that are sporty are not the types of people that are arty, albeit that's changing now, but certainly in the past, that's the way it's been. So um, yeah, so I, was, I met him there and, and he just got a, a job out in San Diego. And I was like, oh man, this is perfect. This is my opportunity to kind of shed the skin of an athlete and, and, and kind of like move into something else. Um, and so when we moved to California, I gave the sport up and I vowed never to do another triathlon ever, ever, ever. I thought it was the most ridiculous sport. I mean, I was just really negative towards it, you know, it was crazy. It was crazy. And I remember uh, there was an athlete, don't know if you guys remember, some of you will, called Duncan McCarricker, very good Sc Scottish athlete, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And he came across to California to compete in a big race over, over here. And I went to watch him. I'm like, God, these guys are stupid. What are they doing? <laughs> It was just so funny. You know, I just had such a, cause I'd had such a bad experience. Um, and I went back and I studied my graduate studies in, in theater and it was the most amazing time. It was so liberating to kind of shed that skin of negativity and build up some confidence and just get to know who I was as a person. Um, nobody knew me as an athlete. I, I wasn't judged. None of that. I was out there acting. I acted in some, uh, uh, in some horror films and went up to Los Angeles and auditioned and I was like oh man this is so wild this you know Scottish lassie going in and auditioning I had to pretend I had an American accent it was just the craziest thing um, and then I was like eaten in half by 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 a monster in one film and I mean just really stupid and, and you can check out one, one of the films was pretty good it was a music video for David Gray um, for one of his songs called Alibi um, anyways so I think just, you know, through kind of taking that detour, it just allowed me to, to find myself a little bit more, I guess. Um, and then I started doing some running and really loving the competitive nature of it and doing quite well that. And then I did my first triathlon back um, when I came back to Scotland one summer just to visit the family. I thought, oh, I'll jump into a triathlon because uh, why not? And it was a Scottish championship. So I think it was at Maniki maybe, or no, it was at Gullen um, in Edinburgh um anyways <laughs> and uh and I won that race which was quite funny and uh I thought oh god actually that was quite fun I think you know maybe I'll do another few triathlons and then I found out about the sport called Xterra and really that just opened the door to everything because all of a sudden it was out in the mud out in nature 
um, you know, it played to all my strengths. Swimming, you didn't have to be an amazing swimmer, um, but, you know, it was all about, you know, climbing on the bike and hill running and all of those things. And so I got into that and, and to be honest, did, did pretty well, pretty quickly. And, um, but, you know, I was still kind of, I was still training in my old habits, I would have said, and, and the old philosophies that I'd kind of been brought up to train around. Um, which was, you know, you're always training at someone else's level. Everything's always hard, um, high intensity, threshold work, FTP, you know, all sort of that, that, that style of training. And I met a, a coach over in California that just revolutionized everything um, in my training and turned me into a completely different athlete. Um, and that's when all the changes started to happen, really. And it was, it was, you know, it was, it was all about strength. Everything that he did was all about strength, forming the foundation for speed. So without strength, you can't have speed. So instead of just jumping straight into speed, he, he developed strength on the bike, doing all of these protocols and all of this new stuff that I've never experienced before. And then I had like heart rate restriction zones, power zones, and all of this cool stuff. And, you know, all of a sudden I was going out on, you know, I, I never could have done like a five or six hour bike ride without totally bonking. But all of a sudden I was taught, you know, really good nutrition. I was riding at my own capacity rather than other people's because I'd grown up riding in, you know, Falkirk Bike Club where, I mean, when you're 16 years old, you're just hanging on, you know. So it just was a lot more tailored to me. And then that just kind of made my performance go like that. Um, so I think just having the exposure to that kind of stimulus and then being in a, an amazing climate with so many different people to train with. I mean, as a professional athlete out here in California, I mean, you can, you've got group rides going on all day long, every day. You've got people you can train with all day, every day that are amateurs that are retired or are professionals too. So, you know, you're not banging in six hours on your own. You're, you're with a ton of people. So, um, Yeah. So I want to go back, if that's okay, to a few different things that you mentioned in your, it's quite the story, really yeah. quite the story. So you took your first break from the sport, I think you said when you were 20, is that right? Yeah. And you said that before you took that break, you still weren't quite happy with your swimming because it wasn't where the other girls were. And then you're running and your biking started to go downhill. And it sounds like you kind of lost a lot of your confidence. Mm -hmm. Would you say your, la your loss in confidence in your swim triggered the loss of confidence in your run, the loss of confidence in your bike as well? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think because what ended up happening was I was spending, you know, say I was training 20 hours in that week at that time or 25, you know, I'd be spending at least probably... 12 to 14 hours focusing on swimming you wow, know but yeah that's a lot of swim well, you know, a lot right so then it doesn't leave that much for biking or running so not only not only does your just internal confidence dissipate but the fact that you're just not getting the training volume because you're having to focus so much on swimming and while there's transparency of course between the spores you just kind of you, you lose some of the capacity to to really push and have the power you know and do you think your loss in your you're losing your confidence is ultimately why you took that break when you were 20 years old is that why you kind of yeah and I said I think, that's enough I think I hadn't found the right sport because again in the UK triathlon is is certainly to get money or to be a professional or to 
garner success it's all about the olympics and so if you're then not good at the sport that goes to the olympics what sport are you supposed to do and yeah. so you don't have any direction and it's kind of unfortunate you know that that there isn't funding for other elements of triathlon so whether that's ironman or half ironman because there's amazing british athletes that that have inspired a whole generation of triathletes and yet you know that that might well go on to the olympics but you know they're not supported so it's it's it really is a shame and 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 even when it came to sort of itu cross racing that there was such limited support there and yet they wanted, I remember one year, they wanted to publicize me and being on the team and, you know, sort of my brand and who I am and what I've achieved. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you know, you don't support, they, they weren't giving us any funding towards it. It was, it was, it's a very um, myopic view of, of how to better support the foundational aspects of the sport. It doesn't make sense. And um you know, there's so many different forms of triathlon now, and there's so many different ways, if you do want to be a professional, to make money. Um, so, yeah, I think it was all of those things, really, not finding the right sport and then losing my confidence. And do you think your your opportunity to go to the state and getting into your acting, do you think that partly helps build your confidence back up? Because acting, yes. you, you have to be confident. Totally. And, and you, well, you're just forced to face a lot of your fears um, and kind of, um, you know, your, 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 we call it in script writing, your heart of darkness, you know, that you either don't fit in or that you're gonna embarrass yourself. I mean, you know, one of my big things was just that I would embarrass myself, you know, when I was out there racing that I wouldn't fulfill my potential. Well, when you're acting, you just make an absolute tool of yourself all the time, all day long. So. You know, um, and I think just the joy of doing something different and discovering something else and, and the happiness kind of shifted some stuff for me. And that then, that combined with you finding this whole magical world of Xterra, it was just, yeah. this is what I want to do. Big time, big time, yeah. So, it, you know, it really was fortunate in that regard. I think I had a lot of unresolved demons that I needed to face in the sport that, uh, you know, that, that have done a lot for my confidence to go back, face them and, and, and conquer them. So um, we've talked a bit about, obviously, you've become very mentally tough and you've had to build up your confidence and that's allowed you to come back and triathlon. Have you, kind of, how have you dealt with setbacks in your career? So obviously, you talked about how you've had Lyme's disease um before and you also suffered quite a bad shoulder injury you've had quite a few setbacks in your career how how do you deal with these um and having to take time out like do you find that quite easy to take time out and to kind of refocus and reset or is that something you still struggle with I think my old man can attest that no I mean it's awful I'm, I'm a bear bear with a headache when I have to take time off um but I think I've been really to the lowest of the lows um, and the highest of the highs and everywhere in between. And every time you reach a setback or you have some kind of adversity, it teaches something about yourself that you can then be stronger to deal with the next one. Um, but I think probably the hardest setback I had was after I had won in 2011 and 12 and really was just in 2013 came out and had these 
kind of performances where I was beating the pro men and getting on podiums against pro men. And really, I was like, I can't believe I'm at this level. It was just outrageous. Like it felt outrageous. I remember even Cy, my husband's looking at me going, how, how did you do it? Like, where did that come from? And, and so like, it's one thing winning a title. And then when you sort of like surpass what you think was even possible within yourself, it's very addictive. Um, and sort of that combined with um, losing a ton of weight, having hormonal issues, uh, getting Lyme disease, having a lot of other sort of health issues that came at the same time and then a lot of injuries, it all sort of came at once. And so I went from the highest high to literally being in so much pain that I couldn't even sit down and let alone train. And, and that was the hardest period in my life because, you know, the reason I do this is because I absolutely love it. It's in my soul. I mean, I was running up mountains at, you know, whatever age, you know, and when you cannot do it, it's heartbreaking, regardless of performance, regardless of income, any, uh, any other of those things, if you can't do it, it takes a piece of you away. So, um, 2014, uh, the end of 2013, 14 was when I had, it's kind of like nerve. Uh, I call it butt pain, but it's like, high hamstring, like all of this pelvic nerve pain that is just the most awful thing ever. Um, and really, I've, I've never fully gotten rid of that. I've managed that for the last eight years or so. And that's been just an absolute challenge. And then the health issue has been up and down. So, so really, it's been pretty traumatic since 2013. I've had some good spells, but I've had a lot of bad spells. Um, and I guess what it does is it makes you very, very grateful for what you can do. And when you have a good day, you, you relish in that because what happened when all of the days were going right and when I was winning everything, you, you, you're so concerned about keeping that up that you're always looking to the future of what do I have to do next? And literally people would come up to me if I want to race. Oh, well, if I hadn't beaten the boys, it wasn't good enough. You know, and, and, and you sort of, you, you build this narrative in your mind and you start to believe it. So um, I think just all of that, it, it humbles you when you're, you're sick and you're injured and, you know, living a normal life is, 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 is impossible. Um, I couldn't drive, I couldn't sit, I couldn't do any of these things. And so, yeah, when you do come back to sport, you, you're humbled by anything that you can do. Um, you know, and being a tenacious a son of a gun like I am you know I've seen every doctor I've seen every therapist I've done everything you can possibly imagine and continue to do that and I will always continue to do that to feel the best that I can feel because there's nothing better than feeling amazing out there on the hills you know and you mentioned earlier that you know kind of like group atmosphere group training that that kind of keeps you going that's what you like to have did you find that was really helpful for you coming back again after all of these kind of issues that you were going through and that you still are going through do you find that you have to have a good group around you to kind of massively. get the best yeah massively and and really I, I base my whole like certainly in the last few years that I've been competing um I I purposefully I mean I've even gone as far as to you know some of my buddies I've I've paid for them to come and join me um, you know, I've used some of my own money to, to ensure that I have the right group in the right build up to a race. 
of um you know yeah and I'll, I'll do it like a year in advance i'll be you know like okay so generally for the world championships for me in october there's you know sort of eight to ten critical weeks of training and and i'll plan ahead and be like okay guys you know this is a drill this is what you know if you're able to to come with me during this time and you should, you have to be really prepared and, and, and that goes, you know, certainly when we're coaching all of our athletes to keep them motivated, to keep them enjoy, enjoying the sport, you have to make an effort. You have to make the phone calls, send the emails, get the text messages, make new friends. I'm always, make, I'm always talking to people on the road. I'll be out on the bike. And if there's another person out there and they're out riding, I'm, oh, hey, what are you doing? What are you up to? And it's not where do you live? And oh, you're a local rider. And I mean, I'll just come straight out of it. Oh, I'm looking for training partners. What's your number? You know, so, uh, and it, it never ceases to amaze my husband because I always come back with these Adonis of men that are absolutely stunningly gorgeous. And he's like, really? <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, who's this Scottish person that just cycles beside me? Big time. So, but you know, um, yeah so so training partners really really are everything so um that's why you know fostering the triathlon club and the groups there are just really important and you mentioned there your coaching so you've got your group of athletes that you coach through braveheart fitness how did that how did that come about how did you get into coaching as well yeah so you know i came out with a a master's degree in in theater and you're like okay what the f and hell am i going to do with that um, but, uh, you know, in terms of earning money, it was a challenge because I was becoming a pretty good athlete at the same time. But really, when you're starting out as an athlete, you don't have any funding across here. You don't have any sponsorship. You don't have any money. So I worked full time in a bike shop uh, so that it allowed flexi hours to train. And as I was co- as I was um, uh, working there for, you know, what would be, you know, eight pounds an hour or something rubbish, I was like, oh, this is not going to cut it. You know, I'm on my feet all day. This is crap. So I just had so much information at my fingertips. And a lot of people that I would talk to would ask me advice. And I've been coached by so many coaches throughout the years. And uh, yeah, I just was like, hey, well, you know, if you want coaching, um, I started off with one guy, you know, a small amount of money. And then I started off like, you know, we have a local triathlon club that's very big in San Diego. I started offering free sessions for them. And then it just became word of mouth. And then before I knew it, I had sort of five or six athletes. And then I had, you know, nine or 10. And then I started to do really well at racing. And I was on magazine covers and and, and bits and pieces like that. So people got excited by that. And then they start to buy into your your nonsense. Um, So, and and America is very like that. That's why it's, 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 you know, the marketing piece is really huge. Um, So anyway, so then I... um, yeah, built up this uh, built up this coaching business bit by bit to the point where it got big enough for Simon to give up his job as a professor at the university and come full time onto the coaching business to really help with that. So, um, yeah, I was very lucky because I think as a professional athlete, you have to diversify, you have to find other sources of income because I think what was instilled to me both by my de- mum and dad and other friends was that. Um, you need to have freedom to do the races that are going to be right for you. And if you're, 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 if you are ham hocked by the finances of it, you're going to start to make bad decisions. And I've seen it happen to a lot of athletes. They have to race all over the world to try and make an income. And as a consequence, they don't really do well at any of them. 
And our focus was always with my dad, we'd always sit down and we'd always periodize my training. What are the big races in the season that mean a lot to the outside public? Yes, of course, you know, races that I enjoy too, we always put those in. But I would enjoy the big races, but it was okay. A world title is definitely worth more than 20 races around the world that don't really sort of signify anything. So everything was about that focus, but you have to sacrifice for that. You don't get to do everything that you want to do sometimes. Um, but that was that was worth it, you know. So I think you have to 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 be you have to have a strategy in place. And so you just built your own and and, <laughs> and ran with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. I love it. Um, so do you think coaching some things you're gonna you're gonna keep doing for yeah, a while? Yeah. Um, we'll see how the film stuff goes, but for sure, um, I'll, I'll definitely coach. Um, a few people here and there, uh, even if we get too busy, because I think taking people, I'm sure you guys all know it, but triathlon is like a form of therapy, what you learn about yourself, um, you know, what it does for your soul. And it's so lovely to take people on that journey of discovery. Um, I really, really enjoy that. And you make great friends with the, the, the athletes that you coach. You take them through the ups and the downs. And we really, our big thing is that we get to know our athletes personally, you become good mates with them. So, so I'd hate to sort of give that up. So you're doing the coaching, you're doing the training as a professional athlete, you're doing your film stuff. How on earth do you manage to balance all of this all not, at once? Not very well. <laughs> that's why I'm totally crazy. Um, you know, it's, I think that's kind of what got, the thing about my personality is I get myself into trouble because I push so hard. Um, it's both made me a world champion, but it's also made me sort of have health issues, be injured, deal with a lot of whether it's depression or anxiety. And I think you find that with most people that excel, whether it's in business or or in sport or in film, um, you know, you have that sort of obsessive compulsive tendency to just keep pushing, 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 pushing. So, you know, I think what I'm trying to learn with this next phase that I'm in with film is to try and enjoy the moments a bit more and to be okay with not always feeling like I have to push. And I don't, I don't know if that's the Scottish Calvinism in me or the need to suffer, um, but uh, I definitely have that in my nature. If I'm not suffering, then I'm not working hard enough. So if I'm not working hard enough, I'm not gonna rise above and, and, and be better than other people or get the opportunities. So it's always that fine balance um, and I don't always get it right, that's for sure. So obviously we've had a bit of a strange time in the last kind of year or so with the global pandemic that's going on. Um, and there's not certainly on this side of the world been much racing happening, but it looks like you've managed to get some like mountain bike, maybe some trail races in here and there. Have you enjoyed having that opportunity to just get out and race a wee bit? Yeah, you know, it's it's so funny, I think, when you've been in the sport as long as I have, which is, what, 27 years. Um, I would say that COVID for me was a welcomed relief um, in so much, obviously not for, for all of the, those other reasons, but in so much as it gave me permission to not have to race. And I've spent the last certainly 15 years doing it very, very seriously. And it becomes this part of every year you're like, okay, now over the last few years, it's become increasingly challenged to get up for it because I know what it takes to really be at that level and do I really want to race if I'm not at that level or, you know, my body falling apart, the health, the injury, all of those things. Um, 
And so, yeah, so so really I did a few mountain bike races, which were really fun because they didn't mean anything. And because I just kind of was still training some and, and, and enjoyed that, but enjoyed it at a very small level without it being this big deal. Um, and so, yeah, so COVID for me has really given, given me permission to sort of say, okay, what's the next chapter of my life? And not to say that, hey, I'm, oh, that's it, Leslie Patterson's retiring. So I don't think I'll ever put that line in the sand because what if next year or what if later in the year I suddenly I was like, oh, I want to go for that race. And everyone's like, I thought you was retired. You know? So, but I think for me at the moment, racing is not sort of in the forefront of my mind. Um, but I, but I, I'm, a, I'm a trainer. I love to train. Um, and I think you can't really be a really top athlete unless you love the training. So COVID kind of allowed you to kind of take the stress out of it again and just have some fun, would you say? Well, adventures. Yeah. Well, adventures. I mean, I've seen it with a bunch of a bunch of folks all over the world. You know, let's just go and run over the mountains for four to five hours and it doesn't matter. Or let's go and take a crazy bike route and go camping. Or, you know, I've done some crazy things like that and really enjoyed it. So would you say your schedule's changed quite, or do you have a schedule? Has it changed in the last? kind of year or so yeah I mean my schedule has changed in so much as I'm not training all day every day um but I still do sort of three hours in the morning I still get up and I have a routine and interestingly I find that all of my creative ideas for our scripts and our stories come when I'm out training so um yeah so I like to get not 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 particularly hard training but if I'm out in the mountains I'll get a ton of ideas and I'll stop and I'll write them all down uh, uh, you know, and, and, and it's, it's just so helpful. Your inspiration comes to you in the mountains. I love that. That's brilliant. <laughs> I'm thinking of Braveheart. That's why. Come on now. <laughs> so kind of looking forward to all the different things that you've got going on, all the things that you're working on. Is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to? Anything you're super focused on at the minute? that you can share? Yeah, so so um, for those of you guys that don't know, we, we had a film that I've had the rights to the famous novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. For about 15 years now, we've been trying to get it off the ground. Uh, so I wrote the screenplay for that and I'm an executive producer on it. And it's actually filming right now in Czech Republic with Netflix. So, uh, which is really, really cool. So we were supposed to be on set, but because of COVID, it's really challenging to get into Czech Republic and we've not been allowed yet. Uh, filming is going on until the end of May. So we're hopeful we'll maybe get a few days on set. Um, so that's really, really exciting. And, and, and I guess it goes to show <laughs> that, you know, you, you just have to keep pushing forward. I mean, that was 15 years to get something like that off the ground. Um, but that will come out uh, on Netflix, I think, probably uh, this time next year. And um, and then we've got some various other projects that we're working on that we're writing. Uh, we're doing an African Braveheart, which is an amazing story at the moment with a, a female queen, um, So, uh, which is a true story. So, yeah, we're writing on lots of really fun things. Super exciting. If it's okay, can we keep you for a wee bit longer just to go yeah, sure. through some questions? Okay, so the first question is, when you realised that your swim wasn't necessarily up there and that you thought you weren't going to make it in ITU, why did you decide to stop completely instead of remaining in the sport, but as an amateur? Um, because I had such high ambitions. I mean, all I'd ever wanted to do was to go to the Olympics. And when that's kind of 
when you've kind of, when that, when you don't achieve that, you're so wounded by it that anything that is associated to it, you just don't want to do. And not only that, like I'd really lost my joy and passion for the sport. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant to me anymore. So I just had to rediscover it. Um, and so, yeah, just like shedding that skin, it was easier. And it wasn't like I didn't train. So when I went to America, um, uh, my husband had actually been there before and, and I met a lot of friends in the cycle group. So I was like cycling and, um, you know, a, a, you know, doing a couple of little races here and there. And, you know, I was always active. I was out in the mountain bike, I was doing things. It wasn't like I went from everything to nothing. So, I mean, as I say, I love to train. I'd go to the gym, I'd, you know, do all that sort of stuff. So that kind of slightly answers the next question, which is, did you continue to train during your period away from triathlon? And do you enjoy training generally? It sounds like, yes, you do enjoy training generally. I absolutely (laughs) love it. And, 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 And kind of to a detriment, unfortunately, Um, In so much as, you know, I love training so much, it's kind of become a bit of a a crux in my life. So it's become quite addictive. Um, And I find it very difficult not to exercise. And so I'm actually trying to face some of those demons in me, um, you know, which is the contrary to most people. But, uh, you know, if I don't exercise in a day, it's, 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 it's a challenge for me. So, but really what would benefit me more is probably not exercising. And certainly as I move into this new career and I'm noticing already, like, you know, I don't have that so much obsession towards it. So I'm able to let it go. But I think that will just take a little bit of time for me to be able to, to sort of do that. Cause the very thing that got me again to the top is the very thing that is, is kind of the, the bee in the bonnet, so to speak. And do you think that potentially why you face so many injuries is that you struggle to oh yeah to, to not to, exercise oh my god absolutely overtraining um you know not recognizing something early on you know you just get in that way where you're you're you know I've got to do this session I've got to do it no matter what and then you know your body and I think you know I've really sort of tried to look deeply into this and and, and I think a huge part of it was again that confidence piece, I was always told that I was never good enough or I was never genetically talented enough. And so I thought my my talent was my hard work. And so if you take that away from me, what am I left with? So as a consequence, hard work, hard work, hard work. Well, at some point that, you know, there's there's a balance that doesn't match up and you go so far the other way. And so that's ultimately what's happened to me many, many times in my my career and is that something that you are better at noticing now would you say you're much better at going okay I need to ease off the gas a wee bit or I can notice this is happening yep like I have to structure in the days off I have to and I need help from from Sai to do it we need to sort of approach it together and I need to come up with tactics to deal with it whether it's strategies to work on film stuff or other things like I guess for me just awareness of how my brain works and why it works that way is the best is, is the best kind of a, a solution to overcoming that sort of addiction if you will <laughs> um but yeah it, sound, it sounds silly saying that but but it gets to that point you know where you get so paranoid about 
not exercising, you know, and that, and that's kind of gone hand in hand with body image issues and eating and all this kind of stuff that a lot of, a lot of athletes deal with, you know, um, and it's just, it's just trying to gradually unpick some of that and feel comfortable going in a different direction. I think there's so much work to do, not just in triathlon, but across the board of so many different sports, especially around the stigma that lighter is faster. Yep. And just getting rid of that because it's not always well, the case. And yeah, and it's to a point, right? And there's a set point for everybody. Unfortunately, what happened for me is I lost a ton of weight to the point of ridiculousness, but that's also when I had the best performances of my life. So you then associate it with that, with those things. But also, you're in a mental battle to try and of, yeah. of, of, of the lighter that I, I am, the, the faster I'm going to be. But then you get addictive to being that addicted to being that light. And really, certainly if you're a female athlete and if you're a male athlete, you have to get comfortable with doing stuff like putting on weight in, in the off season. And that is when you have busted your balls to get as lean and fit, and then you do really well in the race, very difficult to then sit sit there and have a cream cake and be okay with seeing the fat come back on. You know, I've, I, I don't, I wrestle with that on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an absolute challenge. Um, but it's, yeah, I, you know, I wish I could say I've mastered it, but I certainly haven't. <laughs> chipping away, just chipping yeah. away every day. Right. So um, someone said, you said Sterling High was rubbish for sports in the 90s. What more should schools be doing to encourage particularly girls to get involved slash stay involved in sport I love that question yeah you know I think having really good leaders right so having good coaches having teachers that are into sport themselves none of my teachers were they were overweight unathletic and not very invested um, I think by having those leaders you're going to inspire people to see what they can achieve with themselves within themselves um, and um, probably having a bit more sort of community outreach to that you know, whether it's uh, local clubs like Sterling Tri Club going to the high schools and saying, this is, this is a club and maybe we can do some, get you guys along for some sessions or do some coordination of it, um, you know, just exposure to it. Um, yeah, I think that will go a long way to, to, to yeah, inspiring and just, and just making it more, um, less of a stigma attached to it. And then getting groups, getting getting good challenges, getting some socials around it, getting people feeling comfortable, seeing the benefits of sport, I think, as well. Absolutely. Um, and then Gordon's come into the conversation and said, Sterling High for sport was for sport for me was great. Swimming oh. and running and great PE teachers, but that was in the 80s. Yeah. Do you know, <laughs> I, think a bunch, I think a bunch changed after the, um, the strikes. Uh, that happened in the 80s, I believe it was the 80s, um, because really the, the, a lot of that fell apart. Um, there wasn't the curriculum, the after-school curriculum in the same way, and teachers weren't willing to put in the time and the effort. So I know there was a big, massive shift right sort of before I came into the school system. But yeah, I think I think you're right. There was a lot more in the It was kind of about, hopefully, I think there's a resurgence now, I hope. I think certainly when I was coming through school, there was a massive drive on extracurriculars and, and sport. Certainly my friends, other schools, they were all involved in sports. I mean, I think it's definitely being pushed a lot more, which is really promising. 
So in terms of your coaching, do you apply the same principles slash implement, implement a similar structure for your athletes as you would for your personal training? Yes, 100%. I think it's one of those things where when you've learned what you feel is a key to success athletically, both mentally and physically, that's what you bring to the table is your philosophy. And that's why someone probably wants to come on board with you. Um, however, one of the biggest things um, that I've learned as a coach is you always want to listen to your athletes and to build their journey in with you, what you have to teach them. They're going to teach you as much as you can teach them, hopefully. And so, you know, with our athletes, as much as I have my philosophy, I really listen to their experiences, what they've done, what they bring to the table, what they like and what they don't like. There's no point in me setting a ton of workouts, you know, that I do. And they're just like, this is awful. I absolutely hate this. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, you know, okay, let's sit down and talk about it. What do you hate about it and why? And how can we change that? And this is why I'm doing it for you and giving them the reasons why. Um, so, you know, I take I take all of that into consideration, what they love, what they've experienced, what, what you know, what they've been good at in the past. And I kind of combine it with, you know, what I do. But what my athletes love is when I, I go out and I do the sessions that I set them and we have a banter about it, you know, and we communicate about those things. They love, they love to think that, oh, I'm out there and I'm doing this workout that Les is doing and da 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 da, you know. So um yeah. That, that have they like... ever beaten you at the session? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Well, funny funny story. I, I coach or I have coached in the past a, a Mexican athlete who's who's very, very good triathlete and is he won Xterra World Championships as a professional man in 2016 I think or 17 17 maybe and he um he uh, uh, came to live with us and I coached him you know from the age of 17 and uh oh man he's so talented so talented and it's so annoying because of course I would beat him when I first started coaching him and then he would just absolutely kick my my ever-loving ass you know and I'd be like oh I shouldn't have taught him so much you know (laughs) so it happens to me frequently and especially now as I'm not training so much you know I'll give some of those better athletes my special sauce and then they start dropping me I'm like oh that was a bad idea (laughs) um what are your top three favorite movies of all time obviously Braveheart obviously I mean it, it actually is I absolutely love it absolutely <laughs> it's inspired me from such a, a young age and um, the other one is Saving Private Ryan um you know obviously I got into war films because All Quiet in the Western Front is a war film but I just love the way that that's put together it's so visceral the stories are so poetic and so intense and the acting is amazing and the way that it was shot was really revolutionary for the time um and then E.T. Because that was the first film I ever remember watch. Uh, first film I remember watching in a movie theater, and I think it was that sense of escapism and adventure, and what the movies can give to you. You know, feeling like there's other worlds out there that that you know maybe maybe you could be a part of. Then someone said, "I bet you have a much better trophy cabinet than Gordon Crawford." Hey, so- <laughs> that that wouldn't be difficult, would it? He's not one in him. No, I've definitely got definitely got a few, but uh, I think one of the one of the best trophies I ever had was the God. What was it called? The Bog Snorkelers. Uh, it was a triathlon team in yeah Bog Snorkelers. Uh, it was a bunch of I can't God. Where's the Bog Snorkelers? Other side of Glasgow? No, where was it? I can't remember. It was it was a great race, but their trophy was amazing because it was like it was literally a bog snorkeler or something. It was like some weird thing. But uh, yeah, I've got some pretty crazy trophies, it's got to be said. That's great. 
Um, oh, controversial, maybe. Flora Duffy, do you love her or not? Do you know, she, I mean, she, you can't not like her. She's a really nice person and she's a profoundly amazing per, a, a, a athlete, obviously. So I'd say y- yes, but she's not someone like, she's not fluffy around the edges, let's put it that way. Do you know what I mean? She's not, and, I, and that could just be because I'm a, a competitor. She's definitely pretty steely and, and very cagey around me. Um, so she's not going to divulge her innermost secrets, that's for sure. Whereas I'm pretty... Um, you know what you see is what you get. You know, um, so you know. I think she's, she's, she, uh, yeah. That, that that's where I'd go with her. <laughs> um, two more questions: Are you able to switch off and get a good quality sleep at night, or is that something you struggle with? Do you know what? I'm pretty good, and I've just—I don't know if you guys. I'm sure a bunch of you. I think uh, my dad maybe has one an aura ring, where you can track Ooh. your sleep quality. Okay. So, of different devices where you can track your sleep quality at night and it gives you a bunch of data on you know REM and deep sleep and percents and this and that so um luckily I've, I've been born out of a family that can pretty much sleep anywhere at any time but uh but however you know with all the health issues that I've had that has been a challenge along the way you know um and it is something to be aware of if you're super fatigued is your ability to sleep. It's, it's, sleeping is everything, man. You, you want your eight hours minimum a night. And is your love slash near obsession with training linked to your relationship with food? Yes, 100%. So it's, it's both. I think it's, I love, love, love to be outside. I love the feeling of going through the mountains I love to look at views. I love to experience the world in a way that, that other people aren't. It makes you feel special. So that's the physical component, but I've always seen training as a reward. The food is a reward for training, for sure. So my relationship with food is, is intimately connected to exercise, unfortunately. Um, I'd like to say that it's not, but, and that's something I really talk to all of my athletes about that I coach because you know, um, male athletes can be the same, but certainly a lot of female athletes will not take on nutrition during training. And as a consequence, they don't recover very well. And as a consequence, their sessions kind of fall apart in the latter stages of a longer workout. Because why would they eat when they're exercising? Because ultimately they're exercising to lose weight. And so it's trying to reframe that approach to food and exercise which again, you know, I, I get right a bunch of times, but it's very difficult to, to not have, have that relationship. And it's something that you have to work on. Oh yeah. And I, I'm yeah. sure probably, I'll probably work on it for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, it's something that I've, I've, I've kind of struggled with from a very, very young age, but uh, you know, I'm hopeful that, that as I sort of get more of my health issues sorted and more, sort of into the art and I think that's why I love the artistic world because it takes me out of my own head and my own demons in that regard and you get to discover other worlds that you're creating and that releases some of that that obsession it gives you an, an, outlet, an outlet that's yes that's not linked to, to, to the to the sport and to the food Perfect. and everything that yeah I'd just like to finish this episode off by firstly saying a massive thank you to Leslie for joining us and for speaking so openly about the journey that she's been on in sport and all the difficulties that she's faced along the way. 
I'm sure you'll all agree that there's so much to take from Leslie's story and pieces that everybody can learn from. If you haven't already, then be sure to check out Leslie's book. It's called The Brave Athlete and it's absolutely fabulous. If you don't already follow all of Leslie's crazy adventures, then you can find her on Instagram at Leslie Does Try. And whilst you're there, give us a follow as well to keep updated with all the podcast news. We're at Sporting Roots. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please be sure to give it a share. That would really help us out. Coming up in the next few episodes, we've got lots of exciting people, including the junior world mountain biking champion. We've got previous triathlon world champions. And we've got some super exciting people from the World Series circuit joining us too. So make sure you stay tuned and thank you again for listening.